Welcome to a trip to the movies. I'm Alex Zane and this episode is brought to you by who else but Odeon. I love an Odeon, especially an Odeon Lux. Whether I'm on the red carpet at a movie premiere or popping down to my local cinema, the feeling is always the same. Pulling open the door to hear the huge, spine-tingling Dolby Atmos sound bellowing from within. The irresistible glow of the gigantic 4K iSense screen drawing you towards it four times sharper to capture every detail. Relaxing into those luxurious reclining seats and feeling that sense of anticipation as you excitedly sip on your favourite tipple before emerging at the end of the film trying to put into words what you've just experienced. It's nothing short of magic. You can book your Odeon Lux experience at odeon.co.uk or on the Odeon app. They say we make movies better and I couldn't agree more. Also, just before we head to our fantastic virtual cinema, how would you like a pair of tickets to head to a fantastic and very real Odeon cinema? Because the lovely people at Odeon have handed us a pair of tickets to give away every show. So if you'd like the chance to head to your nearest Odeon and enjoy a movie, all you need to do is leave us a review. I'll explain more at the end of the show. But congratulations to this week's winner, Francesca Bradford, who got in touch on Twitter to say she listened to our Kate Siegel episode where Kate picked everything everywhere all at once as the last performance that made her cry. Francesca says, Brilliant podcast. Thanks heaps for making me laugh and cry in equal measure. And buttery chocolatey popcorn is the best. Cheers, Francesca. Drop us an email to triptomovies at gmail.com and we'll send you your Odeon cinema tickets. More details at the end of the show if you'd like to grab a pair of tickets for yourself. Also, don't forget, the full Kate Siegel video interview is on our Patreon along with all the other video interviews from every single guest. Finally, for all the latest news and clips from the show, we're on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok at triptomoviespod. All right then. Back to this episode, and if you're ready, let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, the podcast where each week a special guest takes us on an incredible journey as they curate their perfect night out at our fantastic virtual cinema. This week we're joined by a brilliant actor who began his career on the iconic show Skins before appearing in everything from Mr. Selfridge to The Gifted to Little Voice and is currently to be seen in the brilliant new romantic comedy Rosalind available on Disney Plus here in the UK. Taking us on today's trip to the movies, it's the super talented Sean Teal. Hello. <laughs> Hello there. Thank you very much, Alex. That's very kind. Hey. Can you do all, that it's... every time I have to wake up and get out of bed? I think that might make me get out with a little bit more of a spring in my step than I normally do. I'll record you a little voice note. <laughs> yeah, I'll make that my voicemail. I just call myself all the time. Can you imagine that? If you, if you woke up to my voice going, you're amazing, you're super talented, you're everything. Today needs you, Sean. <laughs> my word, mm. I'd fly out of bed. <laughs> I'd, also, I'd also quite like to, to uh, veto some of the, If you were to tell me all the work I'd done, some of it might make me get back into bed. <laughs> so if you, were to, if you were to name all of those credits, maybe it would have a negative effect. Okay. It might also disturb you slightly if you'd forgotten I'd recorded it and you were like, what's Alex doing in my bed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, again, yeah, again, that's a good way to get me up. That's a good way to get me going. So, <laughs> um, so I wanted to start talking to you about, about the most recent thing because Rosalind is so much fun. Uh, it's, a, a fun uh, it's just such a funny retelling of 
one of the, if not the greatest love story ever told. Uh, for the uninitiated, what, what's, what's, what is Rosalind? Well, uh, so, so Rosalind is, um, if you're ever going to make a, Rome, a, a movie about Romeo and Juliet, if you're ever going to risk telling, again, as you say, the greatest love story ever told, then you have to come at it from, from a somewhat acutely new angle. And, and we came from a really oddly specific one. There's a, there's a character in the movie called Rosalind who is uh, Juliet's cousin, and she's mentioned, I think, two times, and only for comic effect. Mm. And Michael Weber and Scott Norris wrote this movie about, well, what if Juliet wasn't the original woman in Romeo's life? What if it was Rosalind? And that all of these things that he'd been saying to her were actually being said on Rosalind's balcony. Uh, and, uh, and what if Juliet gets in the way of that, the greatest love story ever happens, and this incredibly brilliant, angry, funny young woman spends her entire adolescence trying to spit them up <laughs> um, because she's bitter and angry and also brilliant, as Caitlin Deaver is. So that was our movie, and we made a really sort of funny lovely film with, with Caitlin Diva and Isabel Merced and Kyle Allen, but then we've got even greater Chris McDonald, um, who I didn't think we can ever forget as Shooter McGavin, mm. um, uh, Bradley Whitford and Minnie Driver. Uh, we just had some unreal people in, 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 in honestly, some of those beautiful castles in Italy, just doing what has bits of Clueless and 10 Things I Hate About You and, uh, and A Knight's Tale and lots of Princess Bride. I had to put in as much Carrie Elwes as we could. Um, because that's, you know, if we're talking about the genre, that's the man. Mm. Uh, so, so we, we, uh, and it's a really lovely, sweet, funny, silly story. I mean, you worked with the Shooter McGavin of Happy Gilmore fame, one of the greatest <laughs> villains in cinema history. What's he like? He is. Amazing. Um, honestly, amazing. Karen Main and I, Karen was the director. She was like, don't call him Shooter. Don't call him Shooter. Nobody, just don't call him Shooter. And I was like, oh my God, Karen, I know. I try to call him Shooter all the time. I can't do that. That's so offensive. He's got this incredible body of work. He's done so much work. But he is completely modest and humble and lovely and very, very funny. And so we're out one night and I'm taking a photo of, of him and Bradley Whitford pretending to be old men. <laughs> pretending I say kindly because <laughs> and they're sort of hunched over and hobbling and doing very silly things for me to take photos of and when I'm posting it online I'm like or I'm thinking of posting it and I'm like Chris I don't know if you're him and I was glad I'd remembered Chris I was like, Chris <laughs> uh, you're not on online on this thing are you at all do you have an account he was oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah no I am it's um it's a uh, shooter <laughs> And I went, after all this time, you, I find out that you're maybe one of the great fans of Shooter McGavin. <laughs> and so I typed, in, I typed in Shooter and he went, no, no, it's A-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-
uh, an old friend of mine who uh, I used to work alongside messaged me when the movie came out and said, or when the news came out that I was lucky enough to be joining the film and said, do you remember me taping you for this nine years ago? Which I couldn't believe I'd forgotten, but I'd read obviously very badly for Romeo nine years ago, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Uh, and clearly someone had just like given me something to do with my afternoon because I was just way too young to play anything. And it's, and it's had its iterations for a long time with, I think Kira Knightley was involved at one point, and Amelia Clark, and all sorts of Emma Watson, just wonderful, brilliant people. And the reason why is, as you say, because of that dialogue. When you read that script, um, which, by the way, they weren't, they weren't precious about us tweaking and finessing and, and, and sort of finding other shades of within that sphere, but it's just really sharp, really quick, really witty. And I think, yeah, I think there probably have, would have been if we were to to do Bard or if we were to stick to sort of what's funny about the movie is having that modern dialogue and, and, and maintaining some of that regal, almost anciently archaic <laughs> jargon. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was such a medieval times were really, really ridiculous. And if we can speak in our normal voices, we even have guys from the deep South in it. And we even have, we have characters from all over the world. Um, it just allows us to highlight just how ludicrous the times are and definitely like brings out the farce and everything. That's what I think a lot of the time we had, we have uh, a, an orchestra that plays, I think they play all by myself, but by violin, <laughs> by like a violin concerto, like a medieval, like lots yeah. of loops and things. Yeah. And you just sort of like, that's what you can play with when, when, when you end up doing a comedy in the medieval times. So uh, the, the natural dialogue w was really helpful. It was great. I mean, you are very, very funny in it. And I, to look back across, oh, thank you. to look back across your CV, though, I mean, you have you've done comedy before, you've done comedy drama, you've done out and out drama. Is there something that you prefer? Is there something that you would naturally lean into more, or is it about the variety of flipping between the two different, I guess, different skill sets? Well, yeah, it, it was it was definitely a, a, a more punchy foray into comedy than I had done before. I think one that certainly lent into that sphere more than I have done before. I tend, I think the reality, Alex, and, and, and we've been lucky enough to meet outside of this, I, I think I'm quite a conflicted person. <laughs> and, and so I, I find life incredibly difficult. I find things and justices in life really difficult. And so I have all this drama within me all this all this all this pain that i coil up and, and, and empathy for people which is i just I just love humans and feel their pain endlessly and so I, I think i've fallen into drama a lot more on that basis and i think um i tend to for for some reason or another the conflict i mentioned uh, for a reason is that i tend to play two people that have sort of i tend to play a person that has two internal motions that are grinding away at each other I think I'm often at my most, uh, I'm, I often lose myself the most when I'm in person stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I think quite often the characters that I played in Incorporated on The Gifted on these shows were like men that were genuinely being torn apart by the two sides of them and two, doing the right thing, doing the wrong, doing the things with people they love or the things they secretly hide. And, and so I end up that conflict that 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 me being confused by things in my daily life probably <laughs> about why must it be this way and why is it like that and that's interesting I like that but I think it's bad or that's terrible and I you know, I think maybe that that sort of that neurotic nature that my brain has just lends itself to me being in 
those deeper emotional states than say something light and fluffy like like um like uh and fluffy is uh, i don't mean that in a negative way uh like like Rosalind, which was weightless it was um free and uh silly and sort of incredibly sarcastic and and I actually, as a character, I got to be the person that looks at everyone and goes, what on earth are all of you doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, which, yeah. is, which is really fun. <laughs> I mean, you've, I mentioned in the introduction, like uh, Skins, obviously, was uh, your big breakout. But you've worked yeah. consistently for, for the last decade. What is it that still excites you about your career in acting? What is it that, that gets you, apart from potentially my voice, gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> um yeah well when a great script lands you realize that you've read the whole thing before you finish that when that happens you know and 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 life gets in the way naturally of course that doesn't always occur but it but you know then you know then and uh and the prospect of being able to put my i i, I think i i quite even though i fall into similar patterns i quite strongly designed to venture into new things and so, if, you know, as part of the reason why after I just finished the show and I was sort of, I think I was licking my wounds a little bit because I don't think that show was meant to be over or, or, or there was a chance it wasn't going to be. Very quickly, I ended up in the X-Men. And part of that was like, well, you know, you need to play someone with powers at some point. You know, you know, you need to experience what a human with infallible power feels like in that scenario and, what, and, and the struggle that that is. Or, or, you know, at some point I have to fight a war. I have to, mm-hmm. and 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 as and as if I'm fortunate enough to not have to do one in real life, I, I'm also fortunate enough that I can fake one. And uh, and I and you know uh, I was fortunate enough last year I was also uh, in medicine performing surgery on my wife that happened to have all sorts of things going on with her because of the violence that she had <laughs> imparted on the world. Mm-hmm. I won't give too much away. And you sort of put, putting yourself yourself in those situations, knowing that you'll probably not be there yourself. I think. Um, naturally, so it's sort of new experiences. New with with we're very fortunate, Alex, as I'm sure you know, because because you're synonymous with every great movie, every great event. You're there interviewing everyone, welcoming welcoming us into that cinema, welcoming us into that show, and then talking as brilliantly as you do in the, with the discourse that you have to the greatest the greatest actors of our generations about why they do this. I think seeing that talking about those actors knowing that i might be able to work with those actors i think i'm a real lover of people and so i get really excited about the people that i'm going to work with as well you know yeah which is why i had to shut my mouth and not call him shooter before i ruined it all (laughs) i mean when you when you watch a film because coming at it from my angle like obviously i watch a lot of films for work and as a writer i watch a film and i can't help but look at the structure look at the script when you go to the cinema to watch a movie are you able to completely lose yourself in it or are you studying it? Are you looking at performances? Are you looking at different roles? Are you thinking about what you would have done, what you'd like to do in the future? Absolutely. And it, and it, and it will come up in those questions. I think I'm probably quite an annoying person to go to watch a film with, especially for my other half, because she'll be sitting there. I do. I definitely do one thing. A movie will be playing and I'll hear some audio and I'll go, that was ADR. That was ADR. <laughs> well, they just said that. That was that wasn't originally in the script. They added that later. Just you know, just I just I could I could hear that, and I knew that they've done. And you just go shut to up, Give that, <laughs> let it be. But but I definitely do that for some reason or another. That ADR thing sticks out all the time, and I'm like, oh, interesting. They, either someone, an executive, has gone, it doesn't make enough sense, mm-hmm. or or the actor's gone. I need something that fits. You know what I mean? Something yeah. that makes me then query why that exists. You go, oh, is it a technical fault, or is this going to be a a, a story? beat that they needed to shift or 
something interesting there. I I do naturally put myself in that position and, and quite often just in awe go, oh, not let alone being completely gripped by a film. I do get gripped, but I get pulled out because of the technicalities of things. You're right. I thought maybe that movies would be ruined for me. They're not. They actually become more impressive because then I end up sitting there and watching and going, oh, I know just what setup you had to do this in and you're pulling out that performance. <laughs> I know that Matthew McConaughey is talking to a tennis ball. <laughs> I know he's talking to a tennis ball, but he's weak. And, he, and you just go like, uh, it actually just makes me find it all the more impressive. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't have the negative effect that I was concerned in my adolescence that it might. Well, talking of cinema, Sean, it's now time to head to our virtual cinema. Sean, you are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open the door to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Sean. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? <laughs> it's actually the hum of the slushing machine that doesn't work. <laughs> <you know>? uh, <laughs> yeah. Who am I picking now? See, uh, uh, these are such great questions. There's always going to be a potential several answer situation. Okay. Um, I did think at first initially, and I've, I've landed on somebody else. Initially, I thought, wouldn't you want to take one of the great cinephiles? You know, one of the one of the people that themselves is obsessed with film, because then you can dissect and and discourse about it afterwards. So Tarantino was close. I'm sure he'd be odd company. Luckily, you don't have to speak much, you know, movie theatre. But to then find out what shots he... Because he'll pay homage to it in the future, you yeah. know? There's, he'll watch a film, and if he really loves it, he'll put in... He put in Bruce Lee's yellow jumpsuit in Kill Bill. Mm. You know, Inglorious Bastards is effectively the day he doesn't. And there's another war movie called Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. I think it's the Inglorious Bastards, which gets them out of trouble. So I think, uh, and you know, putting Franco Nero back into the original, from the original Django into the new one, like a man that loves film that much that genuinely I think has a, a, a psycho, uh, a photogenic memory for certain framing that then like oozes out his work. That would be an interesting person. But uh, speaking of cinephiles or lovers of film specifically, because of the way that he ended up being later on in his life, Orson Welles is who I would like to go to the movies with. Okay, tell me why. Tell me, tell me the journey that you went on to arrive at Orson Welles as your perfect cinema partner. It's an odd one, I know, and 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 actually, it's not an attempt at appearing more interesting than I'm not. But <laughs> but there is um, Orson Welles was like famously sharp tongued. And obviously, one of the great, you know, involvers of cinema over our years, and and uh, and one of one of the great talents, but also quite dangerous personally for himself. You know, he sort of descended into uh, what he. I mean, <laughs> how can you not like someone that tells his doc, tells tells people that famously quoted, "What my doctor tells me to stop." hosting uh, intimate dinners for four people unless there were three other people there. <laughs> uh, he was quite clearly just like, just, you know, gluttony was not a secret sin for him, he would say, and was a, a really sharp-tongued about film. Can you imagine him going in and watching uh, Fast and the Furious with Ludacris in space? <laughs> what on earth is Orson Welles going to do about that? 
he would just he would go bananas and and that's not to you know to say that the fast and furious isn't wonderful what it is but like Orson Welles would not know what to do about that mm. and um and there's something that I've always laughed about uh, uh he was a he was a lover of of booze and there's an, an advert once that he had to do many years ago that I'll ask you to watch later uh about uh a French champagne that was being made in California <laughs> And he has to say, ah, French champagne, it's fermented in the bottle. And he's blotto-drunk <laughs> doing this, doing this big old advert. It's in black and white, it's on YouTube. And he, ah, the French champagne is fermented in the bottle. And he cannot remember any of the eight words he has to say. And it goes on for like 90 takes and the great... Great Orson Welles cannot fathom that this director is saying something. He's like, but you're blind drunk, Orson. You can't do this. And so I just think he'd be a real character to go say, watch Fast and the Furious Space Edition with. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of worked backwards with my knowledge of Orson Welles. I think my first experience was as the voice of one of the robots in 80s Transformers, the movie (laughs) cartoon. And it was only about 20 years later that someone went, Oh, and Citizen Kane. I was like, oh, right. Yeah, that's the same. Yep, got you. Got you. Yeah, but, but also Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, will have him furious at the fact that we've said that. I just think <laughs> someone like, like in the movie Rosalind, someone that uh, Caitlin plays so well, someone that is just ugh, irritated. Faffing, irritated by the lack of rightness in everything. <laughs> I think he would be really fun. So it would it would be awesome, Wells, on on that basis, and on his showing of that French California French champagne commercial. I cannot I wait to so watch much. that. You have to tell me how to find mm. that after this. Do I just type oh. <laughs> in Orson Wells French champagne drunk? I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you, so I feel like I'm a part of it. Okay, good. I'll, I'll send that. To Please you. do. All right. So it's you and Orson Welles. Now there's a clock on the wall in the foyer reading a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? Based on my appalling hourly schedule, <laughs> it's probably like two thirty in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> explain your appalling hourly schedule as in you're bad at timekeeping or you just don't get up until 2.30 or oh yeah no the movie's not on at 7 and I've gotten there 5 hours early Uh, it's it's that it's that if I'm working and I'm not on set I can literally go to the movies in the middle of the day Mm. which I personally quite love doing Um, because if I'm shooting on location and I'm not lucky to have my friends or or my girlfriend there then then or my family, then what better to do than to go to like the great cinemas that cities have to offer that like, play old classics. You can go and watch the original Blade Runner at three in the afternoon. And it's amazing. And the cinema is empty and it's quite often just yours. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's just quite special. And I think I can really absorb what I'm watching when I do that. And it's something that I quite cherish doing with my day because um, we could all do that at home, and, and, and obviously there's a lot of work to be done offset. But if I'm fortunate enough to have a bit of time in the afternoon, I will absolutely choose that window to go and watch a movie. It also gives me time in the evening to search for anyone to bore talking about it. But but if I do it in the afternoon, then it feels like the space is mine, and and I really just inhale it completely, as opposed to with you know the whole hoo-ha. So I'm sensing then you prefer a quieter cinema than a busy cinema or does it just depend on the movie i do i think maybe i'm a little bit um i I can't contain my volume anyway but 
but I always, I see those videos of everyone screaming at cinema screens. I'm going, oh, someone's paid for that. And they must be really unhappy. <laughs> uh, like, like, when, you know, something happens, the Avengers finale and everyone's like, Wah! and I sort of go like, I think two or three people there didn't want that to happen when they watched the movie, um, which is just so grouchy of me. I'm such a stooge. But They um, killed Thanos? Uh, I did not want that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one hurts Josh Brolin. <laughs> he is a, a global treasure in the art world. Um, he, uh, no, I am. Um, I, I, I do, and actually, it's one of the reasons why a very special cinema experience occurred was because it was not quiet at all. Um, but I, I quite like. Yeah, I, I, I'm more likely than not. I mean, it's been a while since we've had the great comedies in the cinema. I think mm. you know, quite often you don't go to the cinema and it's one of those just, I mean, I like imagine watching Step Brothers in a cinema. It's just not, that's not the way that you know how to digest that film. It's on every other weekend on your TV. Right. So, so I think, uh, yeah, a more silent cinema, the, the better in a way. Yeah. A silent cinema. Okay. Just you and Orson Welles in a silent cinema. You've booked the ticket. <laughs> you can hear him breathing. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> You've booked the tickets, Sean. So what seat have you chosen in the auditorium? Um, it's the pretty standard, probably middle upper middle and two thirds of the way up. So center, mm. as close to the center as I can get, mm. maybe four or five rows from the back. Okay, any particular So that it reason? feels like I'm in the center of that stage. Uh, just to be in the center of the stage, I, I, don't, I don't have one gammy eye, so I don't need to be, like, I'm not, like, if I'm on the far left and one, you know, I don't have to do that. Um, and, and weirdly, if it's a really, really big screen, and I know, like, this is just a strange thing. If, like, for Dune, for example, I put myself slightly further forward because I know that it's going to be this big, big, I did it for the Blade Runner remake as well, this big, expansive thing. Mm -hmm. And I want the size of the screen to also play a part in that. Do you know what I mean? I do. It's odd. But if I want to be, it's some cosmic, you know, space movies too, I'll end up being slightly closer so that I can really be obliterated by the thing that's, but it's not like action that's really close to the screen that I, my eyes dart around and miss things. It's those big, expansive, open movies you know, if I watch Legends of the Fall, I'd probably watch it close up to screen because it would just be this expansive, glorious, long thing, you know, uh, which I didn't realize I did until I once took note of it. I was like, that's an odd thing that you do. So, so you like to be completely, because weirdly enough, uh, two of those movies you mentioned, Dune and Blade Runner 2049, I truly believe yes. those films need to be seen in the cinema especially Blade Runner 2049 I remember walking out of that having seen it on an IMAX cinema screen and it was truly one of the most immersive cinema experiences I've had mm. watching that film and I don't think it can be replicated at home no and I think actually with that sound with the Atmos sound system the Dolby sound system I can imagine that that I forget the name it's not a Rorschach text test when he's when he's having to bottom line himself and the flashes are happening and he's talking to the wall. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I know that the scene where he's trying. Yeah. And I think Ryan Gosling put that in himself, but it was to, to, to make sure that his baseline wasn't skipping in any way, that there wasn't any sort of nefarious stuff going on in his system. I can imagine that tick-tacking around the cinema would have been like, oh, oh my God, I'm, yeah, and flash, yeah, that would have been really immersive. I would have been blown away. Yeah. All right, then. The air in the foyer, Sean, is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What do you choose to eat? I want to give a quirky answer, because isn't that what we all want to be? <laughs> uh, 
but salted. Uh, what am I going to eat? I, I'm a, I'm an iced diet coke and a salted popcorn person with water as well because you have to. But yeah, iced diet, a diet coke and salted popcorn. So you you're seeing the nachos, you're seeing the hot dogs, you're seeing the pick and mix, and you're saying no. You're saying no to everything. Yeah. You're a purist in yeah. that respect. Yeah, I suppose maybe. Yeah, that's a compliment. I think I might just be boring, but. I I think also with with gummy bears and candies, I sort of just think you're just eating gelatin. That does that doesn't satiate you in any way. The jelly eats you often eat Haribo all the time, and she's hungry, and you're like Haribo when you're hungry is obviously what eat soap if you're going to do that. <laughs> just eat some whatever. That's it's going to give you just as much sustenance. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of sweet popcorn. I have very much a salty tooth as opposed to a sweet one. So. So I will. It will probably be popcorn. No butter on it. That butter spray stuff is really, really something else. Okay. So um, this is interesting. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know you could yeah. get the butter here. I was having a conversation with someone the other day about this. Uh, is is butter popcorn now a thing in cinemas? Have you seen this in the UK? Not in the UK. Right. No. I've, okay. I've. 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 Uh, I've gone across across the channel where things are all wider. Right. Um. That's where the butter is. Yeah. Uh, but um. But no. And actually, you know what? I, I tell a lie. If 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 we do want something sweet, then like a pack of minstrels goes a long way. That's pure chocolate. That you know. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. So maybe that. But no slushies. Definitely no hot dogs. Although I love hot dogs, that's not the place to get it from. And uh, and I'm uh, the nachos. I get worried about how loud they're going to be. You know. And I'm not a cheese sauce guy. So you just I don't want to be the guy. So so no crisps. So you you would consider yourself a considerate cinema goer then, because to turn down nachos in on on a flavor basis is one thing, but you're concerned about <laughs> upsetting people from the crunch, the nacho crunch. Uh, no, yeah, I um, I think there's something quite sacred about going to the cinema. I just like the theater, hmm. so I probably, without knowing, probably treat them the same because they are. I like Ooh. that. That's why I called it our temple of film at the top because it is an almost religious experience going to the completely cinema. right well mm. it's now time to leave the foyer sean and walk down the corridor towards the auditorium posters along the cinema wall illustrate some of your most important movie memories the first poster depicts your fondest movie memory what is it right so when i was a child i used to i, I didn't watch many harry potters and there was uh, and we were lucky enough to have the Lord of the Rings come out. Uh, and I remember going with my family, and we didn't do most the most family trips, but that was something that we always did. And I remember looking back, really being quite fond of that, even if I was a grumpy child. That was quite special. And then watching these three-hour bonanzas, you know, they are some of the most incredible movies. I love the books. Uh, which obviously I'm sure at that point I'd not been able to finish at any point after many attempts, but, um, but was like, I was also like, hang on a minute. So like this, like a packed room, this movie exists. I'm here with my family watching a special thing and it's how long, it's basically two movies I get. <laughs> I just remember being so excited about the basically two for one nines game uh, <laughs> as a child. Cause it was like, this thing is so long. <laughs> Um, oh, there's an hour and a half more of it. So I, I do cherish that, but I have to say, because I want to talk about Lord of the Rings later, uh, and, I, and I don't want to give several answers, I apologize. Super bad in the cinema was one of those howling, the entire room in unison, just 
not knowing what to do with themselves movies. That was a really special one. And I did that on my own in Toronto during the day. But the cinema was packed and it exploded. It just, it, the room was vibrating. You know, you can tell everyone's been laughing so much, but they're all just so constantly on the cusp of laughing again. That like, like everyone's theory, everyone knows it's coming. That movie is one of the great comedies. It's very, very, very funny. And it might not be for everyone, but it, it very much made me laugh. And I think we knew Seth Rogen, but Jonah Hill had not been a thing yet. And Michael Cera has always, always been brilliant, but that was him at his finest. And, and, uh, and so I think, uh, I think I will say just for a ridiculously special moment, was super bad in the cinema, not knowing anything about it was one of the biggest joys when I came out. I just, I was floating. So I'm starting to sense a little bit of this uh, conflicted Sean Teal that you mentioned earlier. So <laughs> on the one hand, you love a quiet cinema because you don't want people laughing and cheering yeah. at the screen. And yet one of your greatest ever cinema memories, your yeah. fondest cinema memory is being at a packed cinema where people are guffawing. Yeah, I'm sitting on a throne of lies. <laughs> um, it's it's that, that's absolutely the conflict that I mean. I really do feel that way about cinemas. I don't, but but I guess the point is, is that through that cynical, grouchy idiot that I am, that that moment was incredibly special and sort of blew past any of that feeling and, and sort of it enveloped me. And actually, it became a. Re I wouldn't do it every time, but that's why it's sort of unique. And it's you know, it was a. I just remember weeping with laughter and not knowing what to do about it, which, which I quite liked doing. So, um, so to share that with a room of strangers and then like, we all looked at each other like we knew each other when we left in the foyer afterwards. You all just, cause you all just did the thing together. It's weirdly communal, isn't it? When you share laughter with people, and this was in Montreal, did you say? You were in Canada? Toronto. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Who were also lovely people to share anything with. So, so to have that unifying experience, and I was just on my own watching a movie when I wasn't on set, and uh, to be treated to that was like, ah, oh, it was just great. It what? was just really, really, uh, I remember it fondly. What yeah. time of year were you in uh, Toronto? I did some filming in Toronto. I played a zombie in Dawn of the Dead, which was shot in Toronto, but it was winter time, and I had no idea just how cold the Toronto winters can be. That is great. You shot the remake of Dawn of the Dead, what, in the, in the shopping mall? Yeah, yeah, I was uh, one of the zombies. Where the opening sequence is in the suburbs and everything's going crazy and she's looking outside the cyclist. The... Oh, my God, you're in that. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. That's great. I yeah. mean, how funny that the that our main man in Modern Family was just a horrible guy in that movie. Right. Remember he was filming himself having sex and, mm. and, you know, kept talking about his boats, I think, that <laughs> yeah. he had. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really love that movie. Oh, that's great. You're, well, you know, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to come across you on Halloween. You are a very good zombie. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So what were you filming in Toronto? Oh, honestly, I can't recollect which one. I've been fortunate enough to go back a few times. Uh, Toronto is just one of those places that passes doubly as New York or any East Coast American city. And there's obviously great tax dividends. But because... Because the film, because the film industry has moved there and utilized that wonderful place and all of it, what it has to offer, and, and it does quite well with you know like parking per city permits and putting truck. They shut down. I remember I was shooting a show once, and they shut down the entire center of the city so that Suicide Squad could blow it up at night, lighting all the scenes just with gunfire. 
And you're like, that's four days of just <laughs> like there weren't even lights. It was like, oh no, the only light you're going to get is the muzzle flash from the machine guns we're firing all evening. Um, and so I think Toronto's and what happens when you make movies in places like that? It's like Atlanta as well. The great thing is that the city really benefits from it in every way. And and what happens is there's a really large base of incredibly technically skilled and gifted workers. Uh, and uh, and so Toronto has some of the greatest in every department. Um, I can't record, but I've been lucky to go back there several times. And uh, that cold is that cold is something else. Um, I've, we've done scenes where people have had to warm up our eyes because our tears are freezing in our eyes oh. as, we, as we do scenes. I, I could crunch my nose hairs. Um, it was so cold. You sort of... It just gets so minus 30, minus 30 degrees, which is where Fahrenheit and Celsius meet, which is <laughs> wild. Lovely city, though. Love Toronto. Great stuff. All right. Lovely city. I mean, you looked blue. You looked gray. <laughs> you had that grayish hue that zombies had, didn't you, at the end of that? Yeah. Lovely place. We love it. All right. So the first movie poster I'm putting up is super bad. The second poster depicts yep. your worst movie memory. What is it? Okay. Um, <laughs> I had a choice here between between um, uh, going to the cinema and walking out which i've only done once okay and and between the most discomfort that i felt at a movie because of who i was with when i was watching it uh i can uh, give you both uh, yeah like. i kind of do want both and then we're gonna have to decide <laughs> on one i've only got space for yeah. one poster but yeah give me both <laughs> Um, okay, well, I um, I went to the cinema again in Toronto when my mum was visiting, and uh, I, I don't suggest this to anyone that happens to be watching this at home. Do not watch Sausage Party with your mum. <laughs> oh wow, you took your mum to Sausage Party, so I didn't. I didn't know. I I knew the name was silly, but I was like, it's mum wanted a good time. She wanted something to laugh at. We liked Seth Rogen. But then there's jokes about sausages doing very bad things to buns in the non-conventional way, mm -hmm. and your mother's laughing, and you go, no, 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 you don't know about that, let alone find it funny. <laughs> That's not. It was a, it was honestly, and then she found out how upset I was by witnessing her watching and enjoying this filthy movie. Yeah. And so uh, she sort of just cackled her way through the film. Like, she couldn't, I, I, I shriveled, I became a tiny, tiny, small boy. Um, I and watched so it. I left there. Yeah. I watched it on my own and I felt awkward. Like there's a character that is a douche who's like a frat boy douche <laughs> character. And I was like, he's gross. And the way he leers at the female characters because of his purpose, it's just really yeah. disconcerting it's, for a cartoon. It's super, super wild. Yeah. You put a face on a Frankfurt and it's trying to, trying to bum a bum. It, <laughs> it, just, it didn't make, it was all. It was all mad, and it would maybe have been funny in a gross way, but it's really just, in a gross way, unenjoyable if your mother is laughing her head off at it like she knows what they're talking about. <laughs> so that was uncomfortable. But, but I will say a movie, uh, because of my teenage years and, uh, and the desire just to be a young teenager that wanted to chase girls all, all the time, I was in a cinema with my girlfriend uh, at the time. We were very young, and we... Um, we just basically wanted a dark room to hang out and together and kiss, you know, and do whatever. And, yeah, of course. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and just, like, watch something and have, like, a really romantic little thing. And, uh, and <laughs> we had a half day for some reason at school, and, and we thought, well, it would be cinema and it would be, you know, quiet, and we'll be able to hang out and, and not be, like, hanging out at a shopping mall, which is all we could do at the time. Uh, and so 
I'm watching this movie and there seems to be a lot of music and then uh and then a man is standing on a rooftop singing to pigeons and I realized at that moment that I'm watching the producers it's a musical which I was not expecting and that there's a cinema full of musical theater students singing all the songs to the producers and I promptly got out I was like this is not what we are looking for <laughs> this seems to be quite important for them and I didn't realize that there was a man singing to pigeons we should probably go so let's put the producers up there as my as my strangest experience in the cinema because we've already given Seth Rogen one with Superbad, so let's oh. not give them sausage party too. Okay, the producers are going up. Welcome to sexy time, baby. It's the producers. <laughs> uh, yeah, Nathan Lane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, of all the different ways uh, an episode can earn its explicit sticker, uh, I'm a fan of having earned this week's explicit sticker a Frankfurter trying to bum a bun. That's, uh, that's a first for this show, indeed. That's, uh, that's a lovely way Sorry, to... Sorry, I'm glad it wasn't a swear word. I, I'm <laughs> glad it's something oddly specific that, that we now share. Uh. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. All right, so let's put up our third poster. This depicts mm. the last performance, Sean, that brought you to tears. Uh, I recently rewatched um, Interstellar. Oh. which I find to be a, a, a glorious film. I actually uh, wish that I hadn't, but I'm glad that I had sort of flicked through all of your wonderful podcasts and saw that someone had mentioned already a scene, uh, the sequence, the docking sequence, uh, where the ship has exploded and it's um, and he's trying to spin it at the same speed. When And uh, the song, it's one, one of Hans Zimmer, one of the great composers of our, of, of ever hmm. and forever probably. Uh, with a, a song that I listened to, "No Time for Caution" is what it's called, and I remember being so gripped by it in the cinema. But but it's a it's a different sequence to that. Actually, it's a uh, a, a moment that made me really choke up, when it, and it does every time. Is when he comes back from Archer's planet, one of the one of the three astronauts' planet, the one that he's on with Anne Hathaway, where they lose um they lose someone and and they get out of it of a planet that's underwater and has these giant waves. And he realizes that, you know, every minute down there is months Mm. in the real world. And when he comes back after several hours, it's been like 30 years. And, um, and he's exactly the same. I mean, we're all exactly the same. We are all literally everyone in the audience is exactly the same, but everything else has moved on 30 years. And he already selflessly has gone and done this thing, but uh, has to watch, Jessica Chastain and Casey Affleck lose everything in those videos that they send that he can't respond to. Mm-hmm. Watching a father go through that is soul destroying. It absolutely breaks me apart because it's the same notion of um, no parent should have to bury their child. Casey and Casey's character has to actually bury people and Jessica Chastain is lost and alone and just wants to know why her dad's not there and whether he knew that he was not coming back and he doesn't have an opportunity to answer that great sacrifice that he has to look like this person whilst the people he's trying to save are living their lives without him loathing him for not being there is just really it completely smashes me and uh, uh, Matthew does an incredible Matthew McConaughey I say that like I know him <laughs> Uh, does such an incredible 
job watching those tapes. And you know he's just staring at a thing. That's another thing where technically what he's sitting there and having to do versus what we are witnessing with music, with the effects of something that he's going to film in five months' time that they haven't made yet, uh, with videos that probably didn't exist on that screen. You just sort of, oh, I think it's, I think it's, I don't know why, but it really strikes me. And, 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 uh, and, and that's the last thing that really made me feel that way. It wasn't very long ago. I was going to say, I mean, what is it about that particular scene? Is it something, is it just the performance? Is it just the storytelling, the craftsmanship of the actors and the filmmaker, Christopher Nolan? Or does it tap into something inside you that makes you react to it? Yeah, it probably really connects to my relationship with my father. Yeah, I think, um, or just familial relationships and this sort of thing where like, there's probably a lot of stuff that we haven't said or could say, I think that happens in most families, and and the people there physically don't have a chance to say it. Mm. You know, it's like in Indiana Jones when they talk about, like, I, there's so many things I wish I could have told him, but he's hanging from the tree, and then they hug after he comes back of the cliff, like, like you've gotten, but you sort of, that, that detachment that actually, if, when you're watching that, you just think, oh, if only they had a chance to see each other again so they could say all the things. Mm-hmm. And I think, even though I'm not in any way near in that situation, I feel it, it reminds me that there are things to say, you know, and that there are things that you need to connect over in that. And, uh, and, um, and actually that maybe we don't understand our parents. Like we remember them when we were younger, you know, and, and that maybe what they're doing out there is something different that I'll never see. And, and I, that I should take stock of that uh, as opposed to letting whatever things that came into my mind influence that implicitly without, without giving you know without knowing that they're struggling too you know that when you're a kid they're they're the all-seeing all-knowing everything's when you grow up you have to realize that they're people mm. you know you yeah. used to be why does it rain why is the grass green why 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 mm. why and then when you grow up you're like oh my god you're lost as well you know there's lots of things that confuse you also yeah so um i think maybe it strikes a chord there you know that, that, that if you have a chance to say the things you have to yeah and I think it's, I mean, for me, I agree with you. I think it's a very powerful scene. I think it's also this um, this idea of the of time passing so quickly and just making the most of it and, and the idea that you can just suddenly blink and if you haven't lived your life to the fullest or you haven't done something with your life, you know, years can pass and you're like, what am I doing? I've wasted all this time. You're, you're completely right. That's, that's absolutely another very, very big part of that. You're absolutely bang on, yeah. Right then. So a poster for Interstellar is our third movie poster and our final poster in the corridor depicts your unpopular movie opinion. What is it? (laughs) Great question. I often ask this question to friends. I sort of say, what's the thing that you don't like that everyone else loves, but that you're not, that you're too afraid to admit? Something that's really deeply... Mm. Yeah, and I wanted to say that oh, this might get me. There might be a laser dot coming through the window into my head <laughs> if I say this, but by by Scorsese or someone brilliant. But it, I might not get. This isn't the main one, but I might not get entirely the Godfather on the notion that any time I've tried to watch it, I haven't seen all of it because I have fallen asleep. Okay, so are, are we saying? In, in your opinion, but you haven't finished it, that The Godfather, your unpopular movie a movie opinion, is The Godfather could be a bit boring. 
Uh, no, that would that would actually be ironically that would be a very boring answer. <laughs> I was thinking about the Godfathers because that would be really contentious. But the one thing that I will say is Titanic is, in my opinion, not a good movie. Okay. One of the highest grossing, biggest love movies of all time, and I, yeah. I think there's very few redeemable characters in it. I, I, I think there's people that lack depth, that aren't entirely endearing. I think they're quite selfish. Um, I think, did you know that like, there's some amazing people on that boat that died? JJ Astor, the owner of Macy's, Strauss, who's the owner of Macy's. They had really interesting stories boarding that ship and lost their lives in it. And instead, instead of talking about the guests that were really on that ship, we've got this sort of love story tacked onto it. And I find that quite difficult. But then also, this is probably the more contentious part. Leo DiCaprio dying at the end of the movie. They're both brilliant actors, wondrous actors. Him dying might be the most interesting thing about it. Because the rest is like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you go, ah, something that shouldn't have happened that they've decided to have. Great. They've made a choice that's actually a little bit contentious in some way. You know what I mean? I just think, I think that might be the funniest <laughs> thing about it is that they killed him when everyone else doesn't want to die. I'm like, that's the good bit. That's the bit to me that's like, Oh, okay. It's got some substance there that uh, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't fall in love with the movie. No. So this is uh, the this is this is Titanic. Uh, Eleven Oscar wins. <laughs> uh, the joint highest winning movie ever at the Academy Awards, but it's not really very good because the characters aren't that nice. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, when you put it like that, I look very silly. No, um, it's fine. I just yeah. I um I think I think uh, I think it was a feat of filmmaking for the time and technology, but I recall you know when the boat I was watching it and sort of going all oh, these people are horrible and to be fair I just want to buy into it and if I don't if you don't buy into the love story which is all the thing then you actually get irritated by the lack of anything else outside of it and the glaringly obvious notion in my mind that those people would have been interesting to feature more, um, and I remember thinking because I was probably particularly grumpy one day. Cinematography, cinema, you know, in the vision effects, quite clearly brilliant at this time. The boat splits in half. And I remember feeling like the guy that holds onto the top half and then falls off and hits the chimney on the way down to the I went, oh, that's how I feel now. <laughs> 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 oh, that guy gets it. So, okay. yeah. So that <laughs> okay, it's, uh, it certainly fits into the category of unpopular movie opinion. So just to narrow it down to one statement, I think that the thing I'm going to take away from your unpopular movie opinion is the funniest bit in Titanic is when Jack dies. <laughs> Great. That's it. And a poster for Titanic is going up <laughs> as our final movie poster. Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> All right, Sean, we've arrived at the last set of doors. Now, as you said earlier, you enjoyed Superbad with a crowd. However, you've enjoyed the cinema quiet as well before. So do you want to let this queue of people in to join you and Orson Welles, or are you having it as just you and Orson Welles in the auditorium? I think other people deserve to see Orson Welles belligerently scream at the screen too, I think. And actually being alone with Orson Welles in a dark room might be quite a lot. So... Let's have people join us. Yeah. Well, we push open to the, the doors to the auditorium and the crowd goes wild. They're pouring in. So before we get to the movies that you've picked for us, first of all, we're going to be playing a trailer for the film you're most looking forward to. What movie are you most looking forward to? It's hard because you get excited for things and, and sadly 
that expectation and excitement might never really sort of equate. Mm. Um, but I, I can't imagine that what they do with Joker 2 is not going to be incredible. Mm. Um, uh, to find out that they were making another uh, of, of those was really special. I think I probably really enjoy cinem- cinematically watching Dune 2 as well, but but I, I would I would go with Joker too because it, that just steam trained, steamrolled through me when I watched it. It really is a powerhouse performance and just shocking and uncomfortable to watch, but mesmerizing and brilliant. So, so brilliant. He's one of the finest actors working for me. So Joker too, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing. It'd be great to see a trailer for that. I mean, obviously Joker is a comic book character. And, you know, we mentioned earlier, you appeared in Gifted, uh, a show that I think mm. uh, went before its time in a lot of people's opinions. Have you scratched the superpowered character itch, or is that something you'd consider doing again with the prevalence of superhero shows and superhero movies that we see today? Yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed it very much. I don't think the itch is entirely scratched. I think there's very much still the urge to do it. But if I said that I didn't want to do that, I'd probably be cutting out 33% of my opportunities. <laughs> I think you've kind of got to get on 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 board here, mate. Uh, you don't get to, you don't. I don't think you should cut that segment of the industry out. You won't ever work again. Um, uh, it's uh, no. I I think superpowers are personal to the person. They they all lend, you know they all form themselves in different way and then shape people and their personalities differently. And so there's an endless sort of amount of um, formulas you could construct to make a really brilliant superpower superhero character. Uh, you, their origin stories, where they're at when those powers manifest, what those powers physically do for them. I, I loved with Eclipse I was playing that that he burned everything he touched. Mm. That, that uh, everything that he loved got burned in his life too, and it was something he couldn't control. He knew that he was he had this like he was really his character was a huge heart part of the heart of that show. Um, and he wanted it to do good. And he did, you know, traditionally in history done bad when he'd been working with the cartel, but only as a way to survive, really. And 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 to deal with this monster in you that you know isn't good and that you're persecuted for being, but in the pursuit of doing right, I think it, it really, it, knowing that you're not, that you're not, uh, that you're not the same as other people, but that, and that you're being persecuted for that, but also that it makes you special and you can use this to do good. And I think there's just so much you can grapple with as someone in a, in a world where there may not be powers or that other people have to have them and how they manifest and how that shapes someone. There's an endless row of opportunities to play someone that, you know, that, that itch wouldn't have scratched before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like you say, I mean, tonally, it's like, you know, the uh, the different ways people are approaching these characters and uh, the styles and the uh, aesthetic of these films, you know, to say, no, I don't want to be in a, a, a brightly colored spandex Marvel superhero movie is one thing. But then, you know, you've got, like you just mentioned, uh, Todd Phillips doing the Joker movies in his own unique style, which is, again, absolutely mm-hmm. nothing like uh, like the Marvel MCU. So, yeah, there's a whole world out there. Nothing. To I will say, even though I haven't worn it, I'm, I, I'd be okay if I didn't have to do the spandex. <laughs> 
if, if I eliminated that portion of my potential future prospects, does that still keep me in the green? Or? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't want to wear spandex. Uh, there is a scene in uh, Rosalind without your top on, and you are looking after yourself, Mr. Teal. There was uh, a little bit <laughs> oh, of the, the, the 43-year-old in me with his little pot belly going, Jesus Christ, <laughs> I need to go to the gym. <laughs> that was that was a summer in Italy not enjoying what Italy has to offer, uh, admittedly. Oh. <laughs> yeah that was that was uh, that was a funny scene and it had to be that way mm. uh and i think they were very kindly like sean we want you to know by the way that 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 no one is making you do anything and i was like oh no it's just he's that this is his character and uh, i've done the same with uh i did a show for for i was lucky enough to do a show for ben affleck mcdamon a while ago called incorporated where he was a climate refugee in the in sort of 2050 or 2040 and i and i lost a lot of weight for that because of course you would you're not eating properly. You're not from a place of affluence. You're really struggling, actually. And because I was playing someone six years apart in in states, I had to do that. And I think that's something really helpful as a reason why actors make that journey. So for that specific thing, it was to to maybe not eat that much carbonara. <laughs> so that's what I had to do. I feel for you, man, because the first time I went to Italy, before I went, everyone was like, oh, you're going to Italy but for the first time. Oh, the food. The food, the food, <laughs> to the point that I was like, all yeah. right, yeah, sure. I'm sure it's quite nice. And then I got there, had one mouthful of pasta, and I was like, oh, the food, the food, the food. It really <laughs> is quite special. There's probably, yeah, and, and we were moving all over the place. We were in Tuscany and San Gimignano and Viterbo and then Rome. So we got a real plethora of all the things that Italy has to offer. There's probably a few scenes in the movie where I look slightly rounder, where I've obviously done that scene and then allowed myself certain things <laughs> in in certain amounts of excess, maybe. <laughs> how, how difficult was it? I mean, famously, you look at someone like uh, Christian Bale, who, for the machinist, for the fighter, you know, shed uh, upwards of like 15 kilograms for the role. When you did Incorporated, how tough was it, like physically undergoing uh, a regime to lose quite a lot of weight? Yeah, I, I I always had uh, I was a slightly heavier set when I was younger too. I, I've never been uh, I'd never been typically athletic at all actually, and I and uh, and I've always had a sort of uh, trouble with that, say, with my relationship with food in that manner. And uh, and so, but it's it might have been difficult, but it's that weird thing that value systems do, right? Where where things shift and actually doing loads of work doesn't feel like anything because it's so much higher on your value system. It sort of minimizes the actual tax it takes from you because of how driven you are to do the thing. So I think when it comes to um, landing a role and having to change for that, it doesn't feel like as much work as when I'm not shooting and I have to not go crazy and maintain some sort of shape. That's probably harder <laughs> than when I have the metaphorical carrot or, or carrot cake dangled in front of my face. So um, I say, so it's it's it's. I mean, what Christian Bale does must be unbearably difficult. Yeah. That must just be an absolutely outrageous and also not recommended at all. You know, the cigarette and apple thing that he did for the machinist is really horrifying. He also lost a lot of weight for the fighter, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it was about 18, mm. 18 kilograms for the fighter because obviously he was playing um, a crack addict. So, yeah. it's yeah. Um, But I think, like you say, he, he himself has gone on record and said he's not planning on doing that again anytime soon because it is rather bad for the human body. Right then, so uh, now it's time to warm the audience up. And to warm them up, we're going to play mm. your favourite shot 
or sequence from a movie. What are we going to play? Hmm. This might have been the hardest question. I'm sure this is maybe the one that creates the most sort of furor or, or yeah. hard hardship to answer. Uh, if we want individual shots, one that stood out to me very quickly, so I have to say it, is that amazing shot of Daniel Day-Lewis in, uh, in There Will Be Blood covered in oil with the burning oil rig oh. spouting oil out of it, uh, out of the ground, and he's staring at this thing. And his son's just been going, and you just like, it's, it's that brutal West that we know it was at the time. And I just think that, that individual frame is, 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 well, it should be the poster. It's one of those things you go, well, that's an alternate poster. You know, there's alternative posters that people make out of single shots. That's a beautiful shot. But for the sake of, for the sake of it being a wonderful movie and, um, and the shot being at the time quite specific, spectacular and, and the work that they've done together since the scene in Children of Men, which is a great film where Clive Owen blows a ping pong ball out and it lands in Julianne Moore's mouth in the car and the camera's inside the car and turns and then she pops the ball back. There's a sweet moment in all of this, this hopeful moment in all of this endless death and suffering and he pops the ball back and she and he catches it in the front seat. The camera spins without ever leaving the centre of the car whilst all the characters are in it and then through the windshield past Chewie's, uh, uh, Mr. Ejiofor's shoulder is the ambush and a burning car is coming down and Charlie Hunnam and Dreadless is riding a motorbike and all these people are invading. You just go like all in this amazing one-up and it's just completely engrossing. You're in the car. It happens seamlessly. And then you realize that that was the precursor to Quaron and Lebeski doing entire movies where they have one shot, you know? It's, so that was a really cool sequence. Uh, I'm so pleased you picked that sequence. I haven't thought about that sequence for a while or indeed thought about Children of Men for a while. But what, what an incredible a film. movie. What a film. I, I actually think more often than anything, when I have conversations about movies, people say that they really like dystopian futures. You know, that, it just seems to be something that really resonates with us in literature and our forms of art. And and, uh, and that movie might do it best. I mean, you've got Michael Caine smoking weed talking about strawberry farts. It's just like, how can you not? Ah, the movie's amazing. It really is. And it, there's something quite special about about making a dystopian film. That that future stuff is really hard, right? Because even with like electronic cars, we have to make them look futuristic. Why? We do this thing where we have to like go further than we need to. And the opening sequence when he's in the cafe and you're in London Street, it's the perfect level of future, but aged and decrepit. It's not too far gone. It's the exact level of dystopian. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's a really hard thing to do. So whoever set designed that did an incredible job. Like there's enough screens and hologrammy stuff that you believe would be functional in the future 20 years, but not just like people coming out of spaceships. And, you know, I think that was also really grounding and settling in there. And I'm always really interested in, in, you know, in sociology and, and, and human construct and movements. And, and that is a geopolitical you know that the, that the story and the chaos occurring in the world is, is really interesting geopolitical sort of sense to the movie too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It does a fantastic job of world building. I think with any dystopian future, you need to believe this is a living, breathing society of the future, and Children of Men does that fantastically. What a great sequence! Okay, so you've done a very nice thing for our audience, Sean. You've printed out T-shirts as a gift for everyone. With your favorite movie quote on the front, what is your favorite movie quote? 
Right. Um, I'm going to do that thing where I say various things again, or is that annoying? No, that's good. I like the options. I like the um, fact that you've workshopped these answers. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I very, very much like talking to you, and I very much care about films. So you've, you've formed this thing that I can't stop now. <laughs> um, and now, yeah, now anyone I see this weekend is going to have to, during the England game, they're going to have to listen to me talk about Citizen Kane. <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, so, so, uh, I did think about something because it's a very special movie. Um, and uh, to me, it's one of the great feats of filmmaking and I'm a very big history buff, especially military history. And there's a speech in Saving Private Ryan that actually is also quite, there's a, that opening scene is very tear jerky where the most perfectly cast older Matt Damon is at, is at the grave and says, I hope I earned what you did for me that day. I've lived a good life. I've been a good man. And that just breaks my heart. So that's another one. If I'd seen that recently, that would have been my tearjerker. But there's an amazing scene. That was an, obviously an abysmal time and an extraordinary circumstances for ordinary people, as we hear all the time. There's a sequence where Tom Hanks and Matt Damon are talking outside that blown up cafe once they get to Ramel. And Matt is talking about his three brothers that they've come to tell him are dead, which he hasn't really logged yet as a notion. Um, and, uh, and, and Thomas, he's talking to him about how his three brothers, one of his brothers is trying to kiss this girl from their town the night before they go away. And he's in the barn and his other brother says, you know, don't do it, Ryan, you're a young boy. You could, you got a long life to live. And, and as he hears that, the girl's got the top on her head and she hits a shovel. The lantern goes on the floor, the barn, the whole barn goes up. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. And he's, and he's laughing and laughing and laughing because that was it. That was, um, and it hits him and he just goes, that was, uh, that was the last time that I saw any of them. That was the last time before Sean went to basic. And you just realize that he's doing, these people did the selfless, outrageous acts of duty without it being able, they're in such horror, they can't even log the horror that's occurring to them. That was a very special thing. But for a t-shirt, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I would like to say, uh, as far as quotes go, one of the great speeches uh, is, is, is Charlie Chapman's speech in The Great Dictator. It's an amazing, 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 amazing moment in cinema history, in my opinion. Um, Tell me about it. Because I haven't seen The Great Dictator for about 20 years. I was too young when I put mm. it on. I think I was shown it as a, as a gesture of, look, there are films outside Ghostbusters. So remind me <laughs> about the speech. Well, this isn't Back to the Future. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, well, well, the movie the movie is about a barber that gets uh, that gets. I haven't seen it in a very long time. It's about a barber that gets. It looks identical to a dictator and ends up having to sort of play that part for him. And, and it's Charlie Chaplin's first movie where he's speaking. It's the first film with with him using his voice, which is in itself quite a special thing. He was born within the same week as Adolf Hitler. This came out in 1940, around very much within the weeks that Poland, the major Poland, I believe. And so it was incredibly prescient. And what happens at the end of the movie when he realizes he's not going to do this and he's got all these microphones and he's speaking to the world is he, he sort of takes off the comedic hat per se and looks straight at the audience and says, you know, these incredibly prophetic things about where we're going as a nation, as, as a global populace that, that we should be unifying each other and, and, and living in this world in love and, and not hate. And that we've built machinery and we've built speed, but we've closed ourselves off in walls. And, and then it was about, you know, the, the, the brilliance in man is in each and every one of us. 
And he says this amazing thing about like, don't give yourselves to these men. These are natural men, machine men with, with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. And I, and, and it just, it blows my socks off. It was such a huge protest to what was going on in the world. And I think as far as protests go now, things are so muddy and murky and like it's a party politics is like you have to stick to one side or the other. There's no, there's no just human element of like, this is wrong. I don't care if you want to pay taxes or don't want healthcare or don't believe in people owning it. Like I, I just say, there's a human thing here, which is that this is wrong and we can do so much better and we must love each other. And, and, and he was doing it at a time when it needed it the most and we must all unite. And, and I, I, so I think, I could put anything on a shirt then maybe and to remind us that this world is ours and not the people's that apparently that apparently or profess or feign care for us as we're experiencing in all of our politics is that that you are not machines you are not cattle you are men and, and women um that's what i would put on a t-shirt it would be a nice thing to remember i think i have to remind myself of that sometimes I'm going to have to rewatch that. It's been so long. And I, like I said, I was way too young for a speech like that to have made an impact on me. But yeah, I guess. Yeah. The fact that it was, you know, 83 years ago when this happened and he's speaking about the very things that are happening to us now. It's so prescient and so relevant. And, and again, it, they were, it was during this incredibly unifying time of like good versus evil. And, and, and not that there's something as simple as that now, but the focus is there's good that we are good and that we're being made to think that we are not or that others are not. And, uh, and I don't understand how anyone can live in a world of hate because then you're living in a pretty shitty house. We should be loving each other. Everyone feels better when they're at the behest of something greater than themselves. So unite in the right way. It's, it, people talk about family. It's the most important thing. Well, because it makes you loved. It gives you a place. It's, I, I just, it makes no sense what I see. All these careerists dividing us and harming us and, siphoning us off and trying to manipulate us i just think you know we're not machines we're not cattle we're men and women and we should um think for ourselves like that it is disappointing how polarized the world is today people are very entrenched in one belief or another and it seems that there's just a, a lack of communication a lack of discussion it seems to be if people if you find someone who disagrees with you it's like well we are just there's no common ground there there's no point in even having a discussion about the differences and finding some understanding. Absolutely. It's sort of this thing of like, la, 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 la. And I, I'm sort of kind of amazed by that because if you wanted to win an argument, if it had to be an argument, wouldn't you want to hear the opposite side and then debunk it with fact and logic? People don't even want to do that. And so that's maybe why, you know, I don't, I don't often verbalize it this way, but that's probably, you know, a huge part of cinema being so important is that it is unifying. It, it can be polarizing, but but people of different backgrounds, of different creeds, of different uh, financial uh, backgrounds can all enjoy the same movie or not. Mm. So there's something uh, very important about the uh, about the movies that people make in that sense. And that's why going to the cinema is one of those great things, I guess, right? It certainly is. And we're very close to finding out what movies you've picked for us tonight. But the final thing mm. before we get to those yeah. movies <clears> is... The last bit of warming up the audience need is a little bit of a musical interlude, and it's your favourite song or score from a film. What is it, Sean? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, one of one of the brilliant composers of our age now. That's going to be very is amazing, and will continue to make incredible work. I'm sure Max Richter mm -hmm. is brilliant, 
and I, I can't say Hans Zimmer because we've already celebrated mm-hmm. him, and so I will uh, say Max Richter and the Nature of Daylight, which is an astonishingly beautiful song, and it's in Arrival, the Villeneuve's Arrival, and it's during the sequence when she's, I shouldn't give it away, but when she's dr- remembering her, her daughter and the father that you don't know as a father. It is one of the great pieces of music, and, uh, and it's beautiful and elegaic and painful, and also somehow hopeful. And, uh, and I, I've been lucky enough to see him on stage and he's just majestic in his work and the music is gorgeous. And, and, uh, and he wrote, I think when, uh, during the Iraq war, uh, was happening and he was watching all of this coverage and what was happening to the world. And you can really sense that sort of when you, when you listen to it, it's just an amazing, amazing, beautiful piece of, of violin music. And, and, and I, I love it. I love it. So on the nature of daylight by Max Richter in arrival. First of all, Arrival is a movie that if you ever if you ever want to cry, probably watch Arrival uh, because you can't <laughs> You're feeling stunted. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you think you've got a stone for a heart and you're dead inside. Remind yourself of your own humanity by watching Arrival because it will bring tears to your eyes. But I do think part of that movie's power is that song by Max Richter. Right then. We've come to the movies you selected. Before we get to our headline movie tonight, though, the first movie we're going to screen is the movie that's most important to you, Sean. Again, a very tough one. And, and, and uh, you know, I, there's so many opportunities to talk about you know, Pulp Fiction and Goodfellas and, uh, and Seven, I think, is a majestic movie. And, and, and I, when I was younger, I watched more than anything Robin Hood Men in Tights by Carrie Elwes. Because I mean, you, you just had a really weird VHS in the house. <laughs> that was the one. And okay. it really helped with Rosalind. Because <clears throat> but, but, I, but I have to say, because of the memories of watch, going to the, having, taking a trip with my family to watch them, because I felt like I was getting 82 movies in one, because I think... Uh, Nothing had been done like it before and it nothing, very few things in cinemas have made me feel so much. I, I, I will give it to the Lord of the Rings. I'll give it to any one of them, really, uh, of the first three. I mean, Bernard Hill is magnificent. Viggo Mortensen is majestic. He's one of the best ever. And I, I, you know, watching the ride of the Rohirrim for the first time in a cinema was what I assume everyone had with the Avengers. I think when everyone sort of pops up and oh, the world is being safe, I just, just you, where people cannot do anything but scream with ecstasy that this thing is happening. When when the riders of Rohan arrive and save Minas I just I it was cinematic, cinematic gold. Uh, a, a truly wonderful. I mean, how hard it must have been to make those movies and to make them so well. They're so big in scope. I can't stop gushing about. No. It. I really, I, they just they're ridiculous and the performances are incredible. That dialogue is so hard to. To say in, in such a brilliant and, and, and natural and sort of completely charismatic way, because the one thing you can't force is charm, and they all this it has so much charm oozing out of all of those characters, and and um, and again maybe it's that ancient thing of good versus evil and, and everyone uniting against one common enemy, and maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need some odd space force to come and fight us, and we could all gather together and you know let um, let Bill Pullman give us the Independence Day speech and <laughs> unite us all. But, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, so uh, yeah, I, let's go with the Return of the King. It was just the perfect ending to one of the greatest trilogies ever, and uh, and a really special time watching them with my family and rewatching them. And oh, the the longer extended cuts, all of it. I do all. I do the whole lot. 
Wonderful. The Return of the King is the movie that's most important to you, and that's the first movie we're playing. So it's now time to announce to our excited audience in this packed auditorium and Orson Welles, the headline movie you have picked. The movie out of all others in the world (laughs) you are going to play for our audience as the climax to your trip to the movies. Sean, what movie are we watching tonight? <laughs> to have a to laugh, what we do in the shadows by Taika Waititi is one of the funniest, funniest movies throughout. And I think the reason I say this movie as opposed to Boogie Nights or Goodfellas or you know uh, Inglorious Bastards or any of these great, 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 great movies is. Um, and they're not even the classics, is because when people talk about what we do in the shadows, they go, oh, well, yeah, like, I know Taika Waititi directed something in Marvel, so I did one of the Thors. Then you go, like, did you see what we do in the shadows? <laughs> I need people to understand. If, if you, for some reason, haven't, and I'm sure a lot more people have, I've had several conversations where, like, oh, yeah, that's that show on BBC. No, 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 no. It's, a, a, it's an amazing movie. And how have we not done a mockumentary about vampires living together? How have we not? done that before and then to do it like that i mean the quotes that come out of that film it's a, a barnstorm of a comedy it's one of the great so we're going to watch what we do in the shadows which also is not going to know what to do with that but. <laughs> <laughs> so wait when did you first see it did you see it at the cinema was it a cinema thing did i i i weirdly and i would never recommend this as a first watch for a movie but i didn't know anything about it i watched it on a plane and i i ended up having people looking at me a little bit weird because i was laughing so much on a plane to mm. that film yeah i mean like vampires don't do dishes it's just so ridiculous i was doing a dance for my friends um it was a sexy dance it was going great uh they're so 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 funny and um i did see it in the cinema and i had no idea what it was but uh, a very wonderful actress and brilliant human anna popperwell turned around and and said if you get an afternoon off <clears throat> there's a movie called what we do in the shadows and it is incredible don't look at any trailers you don't know what you're going to watch just know that it'll be funny. And then I got that. I mean, like, it, j- joy. It just makes me feel so happy. It, and again, a big factor of that is how have we not seen this before? Why, uh, why haven't we seen a mockumentary about vampires? Vampires, vampires and their law, their, their world that we've created, the rules of vampiric nature or whatever, are ridiculous. <laughs> they can't see their own reflections, so they have to draw their, each other's outfits. <laughs> it's just like before they go out on a night out and you go all that silly silly silliness i uh, i i love that movie and i think we could all do with a, a jolly good laugh without any, anything being weighty or painful uh, i think maybe we could do with some respite from all the struggles going on so so maybe popping down and uh, to the cinema and watching what we do in the shadows with awesome wells for an hour and a half might be quite nice you are not eating spaghetti you're eating worms <laughs> worms <laughs> vampires can't eat chips my favorite food chips it's just ridiculous it's the movie is so so silly and uh and vlad the poker is amazing uh jermaine clement is a joy they all are so yeah i i I, um that's the sort of that's it's almost an elixir you know that movie it really um you come out of it just go oh great um and that's sort of what we tried to do with Rosalind too which is nice just two hours of 
lovely, heartwarming, soulful, silly, funny, light, and 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 not, not things need messages, but not always heavy-handed ones. And so, so it's quite nice to, to do that. I love it. What a fantastic choice. People have thoroughly enjoyed this double bill, Sean. And as they're milling out of the cinema, it's just time for me to ask you our mystery question of the week. It's time for what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So uh, because this is a fully immersive uh, podcast, I've got a box. Okay. This week's mystery question is, okay. Having just played a character based in the world of one of the greatest playwrights ever, what other great character from literature would you like to play in a movie? It can be from a novel or a play. That's the mystery question this week. Wow. That's a great question. There's a few. um, There's an amazing... uh, there's an amazing author, uh, a series of books called the Spademan Chronicles that I believe at the time of, of, of searching this when I wanted to see if anyone had bought the book. And I have to find the name. I forget. Is that the Spademan Chronicles is um, is a pair of books, Shovel Ready and Enemy Near are the books, one and two. And it's about a character called Spademan who is uh, was a garbage man in New York before a dirty bomb exploded in the city. And now the city is effectively decrepit and he is now uh, a hitman that uses a box cutter to kill his victim. And he's navigating this world where half the wealthy people in the world, actually the world has gone so terribly wrong that, um, that he, uh, that he has to navigate this virtual world that everyone puts themselves in. And it's just sort of really dark and scary and brilliant and he's really charismatic but also this like vicious beast of a man that does terrible things and and uh and i i, I don't think i'll knock off denzel washington who i think was attached to do it at one point <laughs> so it's an unrealistic one but playing uh playing spademan in the spademan chronicles would be very cool uh, uh and i don't want to give you too many answers because i've already done that constantly so let's go with that brilliant i'm gonna look that up that sounds great the spademan chronicles mm. right then sean That's it. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you leave, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You have gone with Orson Welles at 2.30 in the afternoon. Together, you're sitting in the middle of a row, near the back or at the front if it's a big sci-fi extravaganza. You're having to eat a large salted popcorn, maybe a pack of minstrels, and an iced Diet Coke. You are screening the trailer for Joker 2, the car sequence from uh, The Children of Men, and on the T-shirts you have printed for our audience, the speech from The Great Dictator, before we play for our excited audience, and indeed the legend Orson Welles, Lord (laughs) of the Rings, The Return of the King. And what we do in the shadows. What a fantastic trip to the movies. Sean, thank you for taking us. Have you had a good time? I've had the best time. I now realise I might be quite a strange person. That sounds like the wildest day. That sounds like an insane, insane fever dream. Oh, <laughs> it's been I an loved absolute it. Thanks so much for having pleasure. me. That was great. Thank you, Oh, it was mate. so great. Always great to see you, but even better to talk the movies with you. 
And as Sean's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema off into the distance back to reality, it's your chance to win a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema. As I said at the start, the lovely people at Odeon have given us a pair of tickets to give away every week, and if you'd like your chance of getting your hands on these tickets, all you have to do is leave us a review of the show. You can leave it on whichever podcast platform you use, be it Apple Podcasts or other, or you can post it on any of our social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter, where we're at Trip to Movies Pod. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Love. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full ad-free video interviews for this episode and indeed every episode on our Trip to the Movies Patreon, as well as early access to the podcast too. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest takes us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye. <laughs>